Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. To this day, no one is 100% precisely sure what happened. Is it plausible, is it rational that the security services either did this or at least covered it up? And is it plausible and is it rational that if, if not them, that, that the Russians did it? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely yes. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. His was a bizarre and macabre death, which led to more questions than answers. Since the body of British spy Gareth Williams was found padlocked inside a sports bag in his flat in London, his death remains a mystery. But now journalists Jonathan Maitland and Vanessa Bowles have turned their attentions to one of the most peculiar crime scenes in recent history. Was Williams assassinated by Russian secret services? Killed by a secret lover? Or was his death a very tragic accident? Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Maitland and researcher Anna-Marie Robinson to discuss their new podcast, Man in a Bag, which is available on Audible. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. It's a complex story, so let's start at the beginning. And um, that's with a guy called Gareth Williams and how and where his body is discovered. So, Jonathan, do you want to start and uh, give us some details about that? Yeah, Gareth was uh, a guy who uh, worked for MI6, that's the British Security Service, and also GCHQ in Cheltenham. Uh, which is the kind of civil service arm, if you like, of the um, uh, the secret services. So he was, I think most people would call him a spy. And he was found dead in the summer of 2010 in really unusual, bizarre circumstances. And it was a huge story. He was found inside a small holdall, really. It was a small bag that was zipped up and padlocked And he was inside the bag and his body had decomposed really quite badly. And it was across all the papers. I mean, there aren't many stories that get tabloid and broadsheet coverage. But this one, you know, speculation ran rife for weeks and months and years. It was a huge story and it, uh, you know, that the the headlines were pretty uh, salacious at times and it became known as the spy in the bag case. And as I say, it happened in 2010, but it's just one of those stories that never went away because to this day, no one is 100% precisely sure what happened. So like a good journalist, you've landed us, like catapulted us right into the middle there with a couple of things that you brushed over. The fact that that Gareth Williams is a spy. He's what, 31 when he dies in August 2010? Like, how do you become a spy at the age of 31? And what's his background? Tell me a bit about where he's living. Is he married? You know, that kind of thing. Well, 
he was spotted as being a very gifted young man from um, a, a really young age, actually five, five, age of five in junior school. Um, a professor came um, to the junior school on Anglesey, where he lived in Wales. And um, he was just looking at the kids doing a bit of a, a sort of routine, um, you know, rundown of the school. And at the end of the day, and he was a professor of maths from Bangor University in North Wales. And at the end of the day, Gareth had sort of taken to him and followed him around a little bit. And um, Gareth brought out this little piece of paper and handed it over to the professor. And it had, um, and well, he told the professor, um, these are binary numbers. And of course, he was blown away, as you'd expect him to be, being handed such a piece of paper with all these digits and ones and whatevers on them by this tiny child. And Gareth was particularly small as well um, for his age. So um, I think that's where there was a recognition of there's something special here. Um, and it, it continued throughout his school life. Um, as far as education goes, he went to um, secondary school, which you usually go to at the age of 11, 12. He started there at the age of nine, learning maths and computer programming. Um, and he had some very special teachers take him under their wing um, who taught him amazing things. He taught them amazing things. And by the age of, you know, 14, he was in university. Um, so he was a very gifted young man when it came to mathematics and computers and programming from a very young age. And it wasn't really a surprise um, to, to some of the people who knew him back then that he did turn out to work for the intelligence services. And so tell me, um, either one of you, Anna Maria or Jonathan, like, do you need to be that clever to work for the intelligence services or, you know, is a cunning maybe not an academic skill and uh, how do they go about, we don't actually have a independent intelligence service here, it's within our our national police, the Garda Siakona is how it works, so we're not really that au fait with it. So do they go out and find people to join up in MI6 or do you go through a particular programme, do you, do you apply or, or how does it work? It's, it's interesting. I, we, we didn't actually go into this in the podcast, but I think it's an a, an interesting process. I've got friends who have been tapped up by the security services and they kind of, the way it happens here in Britain, uh, as far as I know, and this is, this is from, you know, the horse's mouth, is uh, say that the security services will have representatives let's say at Oxford and Cambridge and they will see people who they think could be very useful and they'll have a chat with them and they'll do kind of background on them and then they'll invite them for tea at Simpsons in the Strand or the Ritz or something and ask them all sorts of leading questions and then it becomes apparent to the person who's being asked all these questions oh oh, oh I, you know they only realize afterwards that they're being uh, kind of uh, assessed as to whether they're suitable to be a spy. Now, I don't know if that's what happened with Gareth, but all we say in the podcast is that he came to the attention of these security services for the reasons that Anna-Marie has, has just stated. Um, I mean, you certainly don't answer an advert in the papers. And as far as why he came to their attention, it wasn't because he was necessarily cunning. That's that's not a, an adjective that, that was ever used in conjunction with him. Don't forget, a lot of the work of security services is very, very technical. It's something that very few of us understand. It's decoding ridiculously complicated sets of numbers and algorithms that you and I could never make sense of. But because he was so brilliant at numbers, and also interestingly, because he, he already spoke two different languages. He spoke Welsh and English. He was kind of used to communicating in a different language, and he was used to communicating in numbers. So that immediately made him, I think, a candidate for the security services because he was clearly brilliant at just decoding very, very complex information that our enemies, inverted commas, um, wouldn't want us to be able to interpret. Mm. So painting a slight picture of uh, you know somebody who's who's more academically intelligent than the normal we don't know exactly how he got involved in becoming a spy but you're sort of and maybe I'm jumping to conclusions is he a little bit of a social misfit with all that is he somebody who's very sociable has he a big wide circle of friends a close family or is he a bit of a loner 
that's something we try to find out um, actually in our investigation. So um, it certainly wasn't described as a loner at school um, because we had two of his teachers um, share, you know, their experiences of working with Gareth, and um, and he would be he would be quite humorous. He would take a little bit of jostling with his peers, where they would, you know, maybe pull his leg a little bit about how clever he was. So he wasn't a, a loner. He did have friends um, when he was a young man, um, but I think. Once he went off to university and then graduated, moved to Cheltenham, moved to London, that's where we struggled really with getting a really good picture of him um, and his friends and and then how he socialised. It was difficult to sort of penetrate um, that circle, if you like, um, probably, possibly because of the work that he did, but also because of what happened to him and um, how he died and the fallout afterwards. It did make a lot of people who were close to him, who were his friends um, or related to him, um, nervous about speaking about Gareth. And, and it's always been that way. And Jonathan, when he was alive, you know, it was his, did his job make him sort of uh, somebody who had to sort of live a secretive life as such. He wouldn't have been able to be out there, maybe be out on social media, whatever did exist pre-2010. Surely we had Facebook, etc. at that point. How did he live, basically? Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pretty obvious that if you're a spy and you're doing stuff for MI6 and GCHQ that you don't go around telling everybody. So there were two kind of... Um, secretive forces, if you like, in his life. A, he would have signed the Official Secrets Act and he would have known that you just don't go around blabbing about what you do. And I have no doubt there are a lot of people who weren't aware of what he was doing. And he would, if they'd asked him, he would have just put them off or just said, I work for the government. And secondly, as, as Anna-Marie just alluded to, he was a private guy. Um, he was fiercely bright. He wasn't hugely extrovert. He didn't have a massive circle of friends. I know that certainly from, from background stuff we did, and his sister went on the record as saying that he, he found the, the kind of laddie, boysy drinking culture after hours at, at, um, at work wasn't to his liking. So he was a private shy guy anyway. So he didn't draw attention to himself, yeah, for two reasons, personal and professional. Mm. So that brings us to uh, August 2010 and the 16th of August, to be precise. Um, he's working. He doesn't show up for work. Colleagues get a little bit concerned because he's not somebody that just basically, you know, doesn't call in or whatever. He's very reliable kind of a guy, obviously. And there is a call to uh, the security service to have a look at his flat in Pimlico. Yeah. Well, what had happened, um, he had been missing, well, nobody picked up that he hadn't turned up to chair a meeting a week before he was found. Um, he was meant to be chairing a meeting at MI6 on a Monday um, and a colleague from GCHQ in Cheltenham was meant to be going to see his flat in Pimlico that evening as well um, as a recce to see if he wanted to live there, I suppose, when he was going over um, for his condiment. Um, so his manager, the day he doesn't turn up to chair that meeting in MI6 on a Monday, he does ring, try to ring Gareth on his landline. Um, no answer. He checks if he's logged into the system and he hadn't. And, and that's all he did. He didn't do anything else. Um, and then later that week, I think it was the end of the week, there was a colleague um, from Cheltenham due over for a meeting with him as well on the Friday. Um, he didn't turn up for that. He reported, you know, Gareth Williams didn't turn up for this meeting. He told the bosses. They didn't raise the alarm and nobody really realised he'd been missing from work for a whole week until his sister contacted GCHQ um, the following Monday, um, which was like over a week since he was meant to have been turning up for work. Um, so that's how, you know, the alarm was raised. I mean, he had been missing for quite a while. And the first thing to say about that week, the fact that he was missing for a week and MI6 didn't raise the alarm, is that that is very significant in some people's eyes, right? I mean, if you're an employer, 
knows uh, that you've been missing all week and doesn't raise the alarm, what is going on? And of course, that, that led to a whole host of theories. Why didn't MI6 raise the alarm at all? It was only when his sister rang them up uh, uh, a week after he first went missing that, uh, that, that, that the police were called, went round there and made this, this really gruesome discovery. Ooh. Now, the big question is, why didn't MI6 raise the alarm? Was it that they knew very early on and they didn't raise the alarm or did they only know that something was wrong um, when the police called? You know, that's, that's just led to a whole lot of uh, speculation and we can't be 100% sure, but it's one of the reasons why we did the investigation because, hello, there's our security services um, not acting in the way that you might expect them to. So it was the police that made this discovery? Yes, his sister rang his work uh, actually, she, she rang the police. She said, I'm really worried. Uh, uh, he's been missing for a week. Can you check? So the police go round and they find a flat that's really, uh, and, th and this is very striking. All, all the experts we spoke to who are familiar with the case have commented on this. A very, very sterile atmosphere. His mobile phone, and this is really interesting his mobile phone was on a table and it had been wiped there are a couple of sim cards i think there as well it, it, basically that th there was nothing there which would give away uh what his job was and the flat was baking hot very very clean it looked to some people like it had been deliberately made that way and they go into the bathroom and in the bath is this holdall quite a small holdall and they find the body in it naked curled up apparently locked from the outside but the key was actually under his body the key to the padlock was under his body in the bag or outside it in the bag in the bag underneath him so they do all sorts of tests and try and find fingerprints and take pictures and everything. And then that's when the, the speculation and the theories start. So when you say the bag was quite small, are you talking like something you'd bring to the gym? Do you know, it, it, it's, it's, I think it was something like, I mean, it's, it was small enough. I've seen pictures of it. It was small enough that you think, wow, how could a human being get in there? The interesting thing is this is very relevant actually, because people did, experiments with bags later on to see if they could get in um, uh, on their own and lock it themselves or if they needed someone else to lock it. Crucial, crucial uh, question, which the whole case turns on, really. Uh, uh, the fact is, Gareth was small. He was small and wiry, and that's why he was able to get into that bag or, if you prefer, be got into that bag. Um, because he was very, very skinny. He was a cyclist. There wasn't much of him, so he was able to get in. I have no doubt if I tried to get into that bag, absolutely impossible. I'm a big bloke. Uh, so it's much smaller than you'd, you'd expect. It was, I mean, people call it a holdall, but I mean, think, you know, it's not, not that much bigger than a small suitcase. So one of those kind of long, round sort of sailing bags almost. Yeah, but it had some resistance to it. I mean, it, it, Oh, you know those things that you see people wheeling through airports with handles? Something yes. like that. Not that much bigger than that. And was his body sort of, his body was obviously folded up as such. He had sort of knelt down and maybe it was in a, sort of an accordion shape almost. Think of a, a unborn baby in a womb. Ooh, that's what I always, I was listening back to the podcast uh, again this morning and, and the expression, um, womb-like protection someone was, was using to, de to describe the sensation he would have got from being in there. Um, that, that's, that's how I always envisage it. He was curled up like a baby in a womb. So such an unusual crime scene, a sterile environment, heat turned on in London in August in a house. Uh, I mean, nobody uses their heating, I presume, in the summer in London. Um, and little left around to show there had been visitors or anything like that? Was there anything left around at all? 
Um, there was no, no, there was no evidence that anybody else had been in the flat. Um, there was normal sort of DNA and fingerprints um, outside of the bathroom, so you could tell people had been there. But there was no clothes, no other phones, no cutlery, you know, anything that showed that anybody else had been there recently, or definitely not in the days, um, you know, before he was found. So one of the uh, first officers on the scene was Detective Chief Superintendent Colin Sutton, who uh, many people would know. We only met him ourselves recently. Lovely guy um, and a very eminent investigator. What were his thoughts when he got there, when he went in? What was his initial reaction? I think the first thing that he noticed was the fact that the, uh, the, the, the mobile phone and the SIM cards had been wiped clean. He was very struck by the fact that it was a, a kind of sterile crime scene you say crime scene i mean you know one of the questions over this was was it a crime was it just you know an accident uh, gone wrong which i'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll come to discuss but the main thing he noticed was that the flat was really really baking hot and he thought that was a deliberate thing because you only turn up uh, the central heating to that extent, he thought, to aid the decomposition of a body. He thought nobody lives like that. Um, so he suspected foul play um, because of the way the scene presented itself to him, you know, with the white phone and the, yeah, the fact that it was incredibly hot. I mean, the lock on the outside of the bag, I mean, surely it was the big red flag that, you know, this was something untoward happened. You'd hardly imagine that you could get yourself into a bag and then lock it from the outside. But, but this is, you've identified the absolute key thing um, on which the whole case turns. Because if you think that Gareth couldn't get into the bag on his own and lock the bag from the inside then it absolutely follows that um, someone else was with him. And, that, and then you have a whole host of theories. Was it, was it the Russians? Was it someone blackmailing him? You know, someone got him in there and locked it from the outside. So there was someone else there. However, if you believe it is possible that he could get in on his own and lock it from the inside, then it is entirely possible that there was no one there and he did it all himself. So the whole thing turns on, could he have got in the bag on his own or did he need someone else to help him or make him? And they did bring experts in, didn't they, straight away? They called um, Peter Folding, a former army paratrooper, um, and also he's an expert in um, suffocation and confined spaces. And he tried um, 300 times to get into a bag of the same size, same, you know, makeup, um, he was called to the scene and, and he, know, he knows there was no DNA from Gareth on the bag um, or inside. He got into this bag, experts was watching him and over the, over the you know, forthcoming weeks, etc., he tried 300 times to get into the bag and lock himself in and he couldn't and he, and he was an expert in this kind of thing. Um, you know, so he, he came to the conclusion that it just wasn't possible. Presumably there's not too many Peter Foldings in the world. How many experts in suffocation in small spaces do we need or how do you ever become that? <laughs> well, yeah, it's an unusual profession. But I mean, the key, key thing is, okay, he's a, he's a, a, a so-called expert in confined spaces. He was also pronouncing on, on the DNA at the scene, which other expert, experts felt was that he was slightly strained beyond his area of expertise. I think it's important to say that. So Folding was absolutely convinced you couldn't get into the bag on your own. However, and it's a massive however, after he had appeared at the inquest saying this, after he'd said at the inquest, I think Gareth was murdered because he couldn't get into the bag on his own, up pops someone else who's ex-army called Jim Featherstone how and he's watching all this and he goes hold on a minute I think you can get into the bag on your own if you're small enough and you're nimble enough so he gets his daughter I think it was 12 at the time 
and this is where kind of being small comes into it, uh, he gets his daughter to do it. And hey, presto, she can. She can get into the bag. Uh, but during the podcast, there's a very telling bit where she describes how she got in and it was a bit difficult, but she stuck her fingers outside. She locks it from inside the bag. Then she puts her hand back in. Then she maneuvers the zip shut. Hey, presto, she's in the bag. It's locked apparently from the outside, but actually she's in the bag and she's got the key. And suddenly the whole case goes, you know, 360 degrees. What I think is interesting about that is that she was small and wiry and more Gareth's size, whereas actually Falding was was uh, was a full-grown man. Ooh. I wonder how much Falding uh, took that into account. But anyway, uh, when Falding stood up at the inquest and said it was impossible uh, for Gareth to do this on his own, a lot of people believed him. But then when Jim Featherstone now and his, his young daughter stood up and said the opposite, um, a lot of people believed him. So the, 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 the kind of the theories just suddenly kind of went into... It was like a reverse ferret, you know. And, I mean, look, the obvious question would have to be, why would you want to climb into a bag and lock it from the outside? It sounds like something from a circus act from many, many decades, centuries ago. Well, that's a key question. And the answer is, um, a lot of people actually, and this is where we get into the realms of extremely private behaviour, um, the answer is why? Okay, I'll give you the short answer for pleasure or relaxation. For sexual pleasure, sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's purely a mental thing. If you have a stressful job, uh, that, that's the way, believe it or not, that some people um, find a release from the world and, and some kind of uh, joy and escape. Now, it's a lot, lot more common than you might think. So I found myself halfway through this investigation on YouTube watching videos of a young Japanese girl being tied up, covered in cling film, having masking tape wrapped all over her face and other bits of her body, and basically almost suffocated. And th th there was at one stage, there was a vacuum used to take all the air out of the cling film and everything. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's called claustrophilia. And one of the most interesting interviews we did in the podcast was with someone who called themselves CJ, who explained to us incredible, in incredibly fascinating detail why he did it and what pleasure he got from it. And... That's why some people do it. It's, it's um, you know, everybody gets their, 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 their pleasure in different ways. And, and, of course, your first reaction is, oh, that's a bit weird. But as CJ said rather memorably, he said, well, I think people who get a lot of pleasure from golf are weird. Um, so, you know, just because I get into a bag and try to remove all the air from it and curl up and, and stay that way for a few minutes doesn't make me weird. It just makes me different. And this or uh, this uh, claustro what do you call it claustrophilia obviously an autoeroticism but is it not highly dangerous do we not see a lot of people perhaps accidentally dying during this are there many people discovered locked into bags uh, good question um it's it's um it's more common than you might think if you if you if you it kind of comes under the heading of autoerotic asphyxiation. If you lump that in as well, which is people who kind of put ligatures around their neck and they're found with oranges in their mouths and wearing, you know, strange or different clothes. The, the figures are something like one in two million, okay? Which sounds like it's really, really rare, but hold on a minute. There's 60 million people in the UK, right? One in two million, that's 30 a year. That's 30 people a year who were found either in a small bag or with oranges in their mouths, with ligatures around their necks. Uh, but we don't hear about it for two very good reasons. Number one, they're not that famous, so we only hear about it occasionally. So you, you may remember an actor called Carradine, who died um, some years ago, who was found that way. Uh, there was a Tory MP who was found that way quite a few years ago. But most of them, we don't know who they are. They're not famous or important, so we don't get to hear about it. Another reason we don't hear about it is because there's a certain amount of shame attached to it. I mean, 
you know, God forbid if somebody close to us died in those circumstances, we wouldn't be going around telling everybody about it. We'd just say, well, you know, you slipped on a bar of soap in the, in the toilet or whatever. Um, so it's a lot more common than you might think. Mm, interesting. And obviously this was one sort of route you went down in your own investigation into this death and, you know, whether it was obviously an accident or uh, a murder, which is, you know, there's you, you have a lot of uh, of episodes and we don't want to ruin anything for anybody who's going to listen to this uh, podcast, Man in a Bag, which is available on um, on Audible, uh, Amazon Audible. But there's other things at play here. And obviously, we'll always be brought back to the fact that he was a spy. Um, now, I think you discovered that there was some other staff from the GCHQ um, work environment that died in pretty similar enough circumstances. And, and that became a focus of your investigation because, uh, you know, is there something going on? By its very nature, MI6 is a secretive thing. You're not going to get answers. You're not going to be able to write into their press office and get get answers to this kind of thing. So, you know, I think sometimes the more closed up a place is or, a, 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 you know, even a government department, um, sometimes that lack of communication creates even more questions and more suspicion. Yeah, well, it's covered in the podcast also that um, the sex games gone wrong um, can also be a useful um, mechanism to cover up murders, um, you know, just to lead people down um, the wrong path when something needs to be hidden. And that's something we discuss um, actually with a former British intelligence officer. Um, and he, he um, the author Crispin Black, um, he's the man who brought up the other suspicious deaths at GCHQ in Cheltenham, um, where three other employees um, who were, were of a similar background to Gareth Williams also died in similar circumstances in 83, 97 and 99, um, of which, you know, Johnny looked further into. And Johnny, how does that tally with your figures that you have of, uh, you know, the you know the, the percentage of people who, who die like this? I know this is, we're talking over a long period of time, but... It's, 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 it's quite counterintuitive, actually. I thought, gosh, three people at GCHQ, that's numerically and statistically quite significant. I mean, that's more than a coincidence. Um, and that that might give us some insight. But uh, put it this, I mean, you need to listen to find out the nuts and bolts of it. But we, we were fairly quickly disabused of that uh, by a statistical expert. And it's interesting when, you know, they run the numbers and they say, actually, it might look like it's um, a strange pattern and there's more to it. Actually, once you run the numbers, it isn't. And apparently, it's quite a common fallacy uh, to kind of, yeah, put two and two together and make six. But I mean, one thing we're forgetting here is is um, another another key theory that has been given a huge amount of uh, credence is, uh, you know, we've been neatly summed up with, you know, was it the Russians? So tell me a little bit about that, because that obviously is something that is quite a meaty part of this podcast, delving into this. Um, he was sort of working on encrypted communications and trying to create them or trying to decrypt them, was it? Well, he was looking, he was, this hasn't been 100% confirmed by the security services, because as you say, you know, they're not in the habit of confirming everything. And that's what's given rise to so much speculation, because they were pretty opaque about the whole thing. And they kept saying, well, we can't answer that because, you know, it's a matter of national security. You know, that old chestnut. But it is, it is uh, very plausible. And it is generally accepted that he was working on Russian money flows. Now, as most people know by now, uh, London, uh, sometimes referred to as London grad, was a centre for a lot of dirty Russian money, billions and billions of it, okay? So one of his jobs was, was to kind of track where it came from and what was being done with it. And the theory was that uh, it's called the kind of innocent bystander theory, which uh, Tom Burgess, who's a 
very good investigative journalist who now works for the Financial Times, coined this phrase, the innocent bystander. Uh, the theory was that it, it is possible, uh, indeed some people think likely, that Gareth was uh, a kind of uh, drawn into the, the, a murderous Russian web because he uh, stumbled across stuff to do with Russian money flows in the course of his work and therefore had to be taken out, basically. In such a way, did the Russians, have the Russians got any sort of background in this very sort of theatrical almost murder, if it is that, and, and crime scene? Are they not more into their poisons? That, that They absolutely have a background in um, in, in bumping people off in, in foreign territories. I mean, most people now will be familiar with the case of Alexander Litvinenko, uh, a former um, a, a Russian spy who in 2006 uh, was bumped off by two Russians in London. He was poisoned. And that was the start of a string of deaths which culminated in a famous report by the journalistic outfit BuzzFeed that said that there were 14, one for 14 deaths that could plausibly be linked to the Russian security services that happened in Britain. And uh, BuzzFeed claimed that they'd spoken to two people who'd seen a report by American secret services saying this, that there were 14 deaths on British soil that could be linked to the Russians. And, and this, this is very significant, if, if you lean to the view that the Russians did it, Gareth's name was on that, that list. He was one of the 14. Going back for a moment to the um, autoeroticism theory, perhaps, that lifestyle, if you'll call it that, um, would people into this lifestyle meet up together? Are they a community? Do they get together online in the same way some other of these lifestyles will? Was there any evidence that uh, Gareth was actually interested in this sort of a thing? Uh, was there any trail left at all there? Or did maybe Anna Marie did his you know, family or friends back in Wales have any indication that this was something he was involved in? Um, certainly from the point of view of his family and friends, the ones that I spoke to, um, there was no indication Gareth was into anything um, in this in that world. Um, the, they did find um, a, a wardrobe full of women's clothes in his flat, um, but he had recently been studying a fashion course at Central St. Martin's Fashion School. And people I spoke to all thought it had been set up. You know, any mention of Gareth um, being interested in this um, kind of activity or um, sec be it secretly or with people they didn't know, it was all, um, you know, swept away um, by them or, or, or not considered at all. Nobody wanted to believe it could be a possible possibility. It was easier um, for them to think he had been killed by somebody else, that it had been, um, you know, a, a, a murder with murderous intent that he had been put into this bag by somebody connected to his work. Um, but however, there was um, evidence pointing to um, some interest in, in Gareth's background in, in this activity, although it wasn't something his, his family talked about or his friends wanted to talk about, because a few years earlier, um, when he was still living in Cheltenham and working for GCHQ, um, uh, his landlady um, found, heard some uh, shouting um, coming from Gareth's room and... Um, investigated what was happening and went in and found Gareth um, tied to his bed um, that he had tied himself to uh, his bed and there was a, a knife nearby for him to have been able to you know um, um, cut himself free um, and and he wasn't able to so he explained to her that it was an experiment that had gone wrong and that he needed help with um, you know getting free um, so there was some evidence and it's something which um, 
uh, Hamish Campbell um, referred to as a relevant snapshot in time. Um, he said, you know, this was very important and something that should be remembered when considering what happened to Gareth and how he died. Um, that And that in the investigation actually did show he had been browsing websites about self-bondage um, and looking up ways of tying limbs together. So there was some indication, albeit very secretly, um, um, there was some indication that he was interested or had been looking these up according to the investigation, but this wasn't information coming out from his private life and from people that knew him. Um, you would want people to think that uh, because of his background, this is the sort of thing that, that, that he would do. So you would make it look like it was a sex game gone wrong. So, you know, that's what, you know, some people still believe that even though he apparently had um, what we could loosely call unusual interests, uh, that doesn't mean that the Russians didn't do it. Whether or not he did it on his own or it was as a result of his work um, with and around the, or in and around the Russians, which are, they're also very capable of doing anything like this. I suppose really the, the facts are there at the crime scene and that bag, uh, surely if somebody helped him or aided him to get in, there'd be something left, a fingerprint, a little piece of DNA, something. And if he did it on his own, it would only be surely his own. So is that not like the smoking gun in this case? If, if, you know, what forensics there were at the scene? Well, the thing is, it was so hot, it is entirely possible that with all the condensation that any fingerprints that there were there were washed away, all right, number one. Right. And number two, there is this theory that every contact leaves a trace. That's what Peter Falding says. But, you know, we spoke to another expert, and I'm pretty, I think it was Hamish Campbell, wasn't it, uh, uh, Anna-Marie, who said, actually, it's not true. Actually, it was a guy called Jim Fraser. It yeah, it was Jim, yeah. That's right. We spoke to Professor Jim Fraser, who's an expert in forensic science, who was called in by the police like, you know, a latter-day Poirot, who said, actually, it's not provable that every contact leaves a trace. Um, he said, you know, the bag itself was kind of like a vinyl type, uh, made of a vinyl type substance, which wouldn't necessarily retain fingerprints. There was a lot of condensation. So there wasn't the proof or the fingerprints that you'd expect there to be. Mm. It's, um, I can imagine it being both an intriguing and a frustrating case. It sounds to me like the sort of investigation, if I got involved, I'd be rolling around in the bed at night with every thought going through my head and I would come to a conclusion that I knew exactly how it had gone, gone off and I'd wake up the next morning and that would be wiped clean and I'd be back to square one. Is that the way it was? You've got it absolutely, Nicola. I mean, I, you know, when I got it, it's almost three years since um, since I took on the case or was was asked to, you know, to to help out with it. And uh, I thought I knew pretty early on. I thought, yeah, you know, he, he, this was a sex game gone wrong. It was an accident. It has to be, you know. And and then and then you go into the Russian angle, and then the more. You look into that and then speak to people, including in the podcast, a, a former Home Office minister. You know, this is a, a high up politician who has access to a lot of documents that we don't. And my, my our colleague, Vanessa, who spoke to an ex, uh, the, basically an ex-KGB Russian spy, who, who you know, categorically believes, although it's, it, as he admits it's his theory, but he categorically believes that the Russians did it. You listen to all that and you think, oh my goodness, actually, is it possible? Yes, it's more than possible. It's plausible that, uh, that, that, that the Russians might have done it. So, yeah, you, 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 you go all the way around the houses. You do, you know, investigative three-point turns. You go down these alleyways that seem very promising and then they turn out to be cul-de-sacs. And then theories that seem quite outlandish like, you know, did MI6, did our own security services, could they possibly have bumped off one of their own or at least covered it up? And you think, no, no, that doesn't happen. And then you say to yourself, well, hold on a minute, how do you know that doesn't happen? It could easily have happened. I mean, they are called the secret services after all. They keep things secret. Uh, and, and um, you know, the fact that they didn't alert anyone for a week, you know, that, that suddenly becomes really significant. 
so yeah, you're like a spinning top, really. And you know, I think when you know, as journalists, we we get sort of you know dug into these cases, and and we do all in our in our powers to you know uncover what we can, but. We have an ability eventually, sometimes it could be after a week, months or sometimes years, we move on to the next case and we can leave it behind. But it gives us a little insight into what it must be like for families with no answers and that they are, you know, they can't walk away from it. It's a loved one and it is their, the rest of their lives. They're, they're living like that. Yeah, it can be a moral dilemma sometimes, can't it? But when you get involved in these stories, um, in these unsolved mysteries, when, well, it's especially in my situation where I live really, you know, in Wales, not far from um, the family and friends of, of Gareth, although I don't know them. Um, and it is something you consider, isn't it? Is this something we should be doing? Why are we looking at this? Why is it still, you know, a concern 10 years later? And it is something we all consider really before, you know, putting them or their loved ones through any kind of trauma again you know re-traumatizing people um but when there is public interest as there is in this case because there is no explanation for a lot and still remains a lot of questions unanswered as to what happened to gareth i think it's something we we have to do um and yes there are some sleepless nights um, and there are questions that you ask yourself over and over again about why which is something people were asking me when I was ringing them up and then asking them to contribute in any way you know about building this picture of Gareth that we really wanted um, uh, why are you doing this what are you hoping to get out from it and, it and it always is the quest for the truth isn't it that's what we're looking for is just trying to find out is there anything out there um, we can find or we can say that hasn't been heard or said before and, and the thing about the public interest is really important because um you've got to say what what you know okay let's let's you know go a bit further with that what is the public interest in this case and, and i think you have to say is it plausible is it rational that the security services either did this or at least covered it up and is it plausible and is it rational that if, if not them that, that the russians did it and the answer is absolutely absolutely yes and that's why you investigate. Now, we were very, we had a lot of discussions about um, how do we do this in a way that isn't sensational or salacious because of the kind of personal stuff we've been discussing about the, the kind of the, the, the sexual aspect, if you like. And we were very keen um, to um, do it in a respectful way. But it's, you have to go there if you're going to do the story uh, properly. Uh, and and I hope that we've managed to do it in a kind of respectful way because one thing that got lost in all the tabloid coverage and all the newspaper coverage of, of Gareth was what a, a very special person he was. He was brilliant. And so we spend a whole episode going into what an extraordinary, special and talented uh, boy he was. Now, in the podcast, it's clear that the family, you know, didn't want, this to be discussed anymore they decided what happened to him and they would rather journalists didn't didn't root around anymore and we totally understood that um and and so they they didn't really cooperate uh but it, it you know the more we looked into it the more it was clear that that what the family thought happened to him which is that they think he was murdered um uh you know that narrative had you know, certainly some flaws in it and was, was definitely questionable. Um, and, and that's why we decided to do the story in, a, in what I hope was a, a responsible and, and professional way. And I have to say, in the end, although we did all these 360-degree turns, we do, by the end, and we thought about it long and hard and we spoke to so many people, we do, in the end, come to a conclusion which I think is highly likely, which, which I'm still satisfied now, three years nearly after we started all this, but I'm pretty satisfied. We, we have um, pretty much cracked the case. So you can never be 100% certain because you know, that's why people have just been speculating about it for nearly 13 years now. So it happened nearly 13 years ago. But I'm pretty certain now we know how and why Gareth died. And that means anybody listening to it, Johnny, has to listen right to the end, which, of course, is the purpose of uh, these long-form podcasts, which I absolutely love. 
um, a good story being told in audio. There's nothing quite like it. Um, but finally ask you, and maybe this one is for you, Johnny, to finish with. Um, is this one of the most bizarre deaths in recent times in the last century, whatever we want, whatever time scale we want to take? Is it one of the most bizarre deaths you have ever seen in your career? Well, I can't think of anything more bizarre. I mean, I think that there are homicide detectives who we speak to who say it's absolutely the most bizarre thing they've ever come across in their lives. So if it is for them, it definitely is for me. I mean, who else has heard of a of a, of a, a, a young man um, curled up in a bag with his body decomposing with the bag apparently locked from the outside or was it the inside? And And the proof, if you like, for that is you say to anybody, you know, I've spoken to hundreds of people now about this podcast, and they say, what are you doing? And I say, I've done this this podcast. And you just tell them the first line about it. You say, it's about this spy who was found in a hold-on. They go, oh, yeah, I know that. Everybody knows this case. Now, if you'd made that up, if it had been a, you know, a, a John Grisham or a John le Carre, and, and that had been the plot, you know, a spy found in a bag, nah, you know, you're having a laugh. Absolutely no way. Um, so the old cliche, truth is stranger than fiction, is absolutely true in this case. This is way, way stranger and more bizarre than fiction. For sure. And I would advise anybody listening to this podcast to uh, tune in on Amazon Audible, Audible Amazon, whichever way they say it, uh, Man in a Bag. So today, thank you, Anna-Marie Robinson and Jonathan Maitland. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.